Matthew 6, verses 8 to 13. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, has been revealing to us what constitutes true religion. Over against the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes, who have corrupted the meaning of the law of God. They either externalize, uh, emphasize the externals of religion and neglect what really matters, which is the heart. Or they go through the externals, however, they have impure motives. So regardless, Jesus says, with, with, return, with regard to almsgiving, fasting, and prayer, that we looked at two of those last week. He says they have abused those areas. They are have been become hypocrites, according to Jesus. That's what he calls them, because they do not do it in a proper way. So they gave to the poor in such a way as to call attention to themselves. They fasted in order to call attention to themselves. Uh, when he says uh, they, they either uh, stand on the street corners or they go in the synagogue, they sound a trumpet and announce people that they're about to give, or they have things on their faces or they look gloomy so that people will understand that they are fasting. And Jesus says, and also he's made reference to praying. He says they like to go and they like to stand in the synagogue. They like to stand on the street corners praying Why? So that they will be seen of men for being, quote, religious. So what was Jesus' attitude towards them? He says, you have your reward in full, but your reward is not with God. You wanted to be seen of men, you were seen of men. So you got what you wanted. But you're not going to be pleased on the day of judgment with what comes to you because your worship was not in keeping with what I've commanded. He says, you're a hypocrite. And Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. So going through the religious activities for the purpose of bringing glory to yourself is worship that God condemns. Jesus says it's hypocrisy. The focus of our message today is that on prayer. And you see, what's a tragic thing is this, is to go through all of this religious activity only to be condemned by the Lord Jesus on Judgment Day. I can't think of anything more disconcerting or frightening than to think, to go in all your life thinking that you're religious, like the Pharisees, And then only to hear Jesus, the judge, say, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. Yeah, but I thought I did all of these things. Remember, Jesus, we're going to see uh, in in a few weeks when, when we talk about Matthew 7, there's going to be a lot of people who think they did a lot of wonderful things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. I know you did it in my name, but that doesn't mean you're mine. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, what he said there in in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, "You, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says it has to do, how you give alms is important, with what motives you give them. How you fast is important. Don't let people know what you, that you're fasting. Uh, don't, 
uh, make a show of it. And we discussed that last week, how some uh, let everybody know that they're fasting. No. He says, do it in secret. And he says, when you pray, don't go standing on the street corners uh, praying in such a way so as to bring attention to yourself. And so what we see, what Jesus is emphasizing is you don't make a show of your religious activities. Don't draw attention to yourself. But Jesus says, do it in secret. If necessary, give in secret. If necessary, pray in secret. So as not to bring condemnation upon yourself. Now, there's nothing. Jesus is not forbidding public giving. He's not forbidding public prayer. What he is forbidding is engaging in these activities for the purpose of drawing attention to yourself. That's what he's condemning. That's what the Pharisees were doing. It wasn't about really worshiping God. It was about coming across as being religious people before people. That's what they're, what Jesus says, why they were hypocrites. They weren't really worshiping God. They were worshiping themselves. Now, we also, let's be careful that we understand what Jesus is saying here. Let's don't get caught up with the mechanism of how to pray, because, you know, we can go into our secret closets to pray and still be guilty of what Jesus is saying. Still be guilty of violating what he says. Even though you do it in a closet where nobody else sees it. Now, how, how would that be? Well, the whole point here is, regardless of where and when you pray, the attitude must never be to draw attention to yourself. See, I could be just as guilty as the Pharisees privately if in all my prayer life I'm concentrating on me. I can still violate this passage. So you've got to understand when Jesus says, don't do it on the street corner, but do it in secret, you've got to understand what the point here is. Don't draw attention to yourself wherever you are. So in praying, we must avoid praying so as to impress people. Now, Jesus did say here, if you look at verse 7, uh, he says, When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So he says you don't use... Uh, what we may call religious mantras, where you repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again. Some religions like to do that by thinking that by doing that, they're going to get God's attention. But that's not how you get God's attention. In fact, God doesn't like that. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 23, he doesn't like long prayers. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, you're going to see some long prayers. So is he forbidding long prayers per se? Not necessarily. But what he's forbidding is long prayers for the purpose of thinking, the longer that I pray, then that's going to impress God. If I pray that one hour is better than 15 minutes. Well, not necessarily. It doesn't mean you can't pray for an hour. It doesn't mean that you can't have an all-night prayer meeting. But if you think about having an all-night prayer meeting, that that is going to break through with God as opposed to a ten-minute prayer meeting, then we're guilty of what Jesus is saying. In other words, we don't go through any kind of mechanism by which we think that that mechanism is going to get God's attention because it's not going to get God's attention in the right way. So the Gentiles made these vain repetitions. They made their prayers uh, thinking that they would be heard by God, and that was a mistake. They were not going to be heard by God in a way that they would have desired. So let's keep in mind the overall thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus again says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless you're praying with pure motives, then you're guilty of praying like the Pharisees. And you're hypocrites. See, the Pharisees had corrupt hearts. Jesus knew that. Their motives were ungodly. Because they were trying to draw attention to themselves. That's ungodly. They were filled with pride, which God says he rejects the proud. But he exalts the humble, as James says. The Pharisees, they were so corrupt in heart that Jesus says they were hell-bound. That's why he said in Matthew 23, in all of their actions, he says, you go out and you make proselytes of other people, and you make them as people like you that are bound for hell, just like you. He says, don't think that by your religious activity per se, you've done anything magnanimous, because you haven't. Now, we may be genuine Christians. We're not like the Pharisees. Many of the Pharisees, of course, they were corrupt. And they were not going to see the kingdom of God, like Jesus said. But we can fall into the trap of being like the Pharisees without having corrupt hearts like the Pharisees. So by praying in order, for example, here's how that we can be guilty of some of the things that Jesus was forbidding here. So that when we're engaged in, let's say, a, a, a prayer meeting, we engage in many sermons towards the rest of the people in the prayer meeting. That's what we're not to do. And see, what's the problem with that? We're not praying to God. We're trying to exhort people in the prayer meeting. Well, that's not the purpose of prayer. Purpose of prayer is to come before the living God. So we're we're not so much to have other people in mind when we pray. We're praying to God and not men. Now that doesn't rule out what the Scripture says. In places it says we are to agree with one another. It says we're two or three, or in agreement. God is there. Heeding to what these three are in agreement. Understand, again, what Jesus is driving at. We're not to try to impress anybody, any human. We are praying to God, our Heavenly Father. One thing we need to guard against is the idea, and sometimes you may have heard this, or someone may say, Oh, he prays such beautiful prayers. And what they mean is prayers where it's kind of a polished uh, way of praying, the words that are used, the phrase, the phrase, and the holy voice that you pray with. That's not your common voice. Uh, things like this. Um, you know, it, it's... I mean, we have to be careful here because some Christians, uh, they may be saying prayers and praying to God in a way from a genuine heart of praise to God. And other people may think, well, that was a magnificent prayer. So we're not talking about that. But what I've got to be guarding against is the mindset, well, I've got to pray so that other people will be impressed with my prayer. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pray in such a way that you come away and say, well, that was a magnificent prayer. Well, I'm not trying to impress you. You shouldn't try to be impressing anybody. You and I are to be praying to God and keeping other people out of the mix, as it were. And so Jesus' exhortation is a, he's not against public praying as such. Uh, Jesus is stressing that we are to be praying to the Father and not to men. We're not trying to impress anyone. And if we're, we've got to be careful that we're not trying to impress God as such. 
And that's why Jesus says, if you think by your repeated mantras over and over again you're impressing God, or by your long prayers you're going to get God's attention, he says you're mistaken. If that's what your intent is. It's all about the motive. The motive. So I can pray in secret. I can be in my prayer closet. Still violate what Jesus says here. By still drawing attention to myself in my prayer. You know, I might as well, if that's the case, I might as well go out in the street corner. <laughs> if I'm going to draw attention to myself, then go out into the street corner and draw attention to yourself. As Jesus says, it's not the long prayers that are impressive to God, per se. He says you've got to have the right motive. Now, notice what Jesus says. If you look there, look at verse 8. He says, now, don't be like these Gentiles with their meaningless repetitions and their uh, many words. He says, therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Did you catch that? God already knows what you and I need before we even ask Him. Well, I know what your next question could be then. Well, if God already knows it, then why bother to pray? Right? If God already knows what I need, why am I supposed to be praying? Well, the Bible commands us to pray. For one, we need to obey the Scriptures. We're going to see, and when we get to Matthew 7, verse 7, uh, we have the command that says, Ask, and you shall receive. So we are deliberately commanded by God to ask God on an ongoing basis. And when we ask, we shall receive. Also, James chapter 4, verse 2 says, you don't have because you never asked. And then he says, when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives to consume it upon your lusts. And therefore, when you do ask, you ask in a wrong way. The point Jesus is making is vain repetitions don't impress God. Long prayers don't impress God. It's not something that we have to do to try to break through to God. So how should we pray? And that's a good question. And Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, tells us this is how we ought to pray. Now let me just say at the outset, oftentimes in our liturgy, in in the Lord's worship, Many churches will pray the Lord's Prayer. We actually pray the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer, but let's be careful. If we pray the Lord's Prayer just to pray the Lord's Prayer, have we impressed God? Not really, necessarily, by just praying the Lord's Prayer. What we want to emphasize today is, why did Jesus say the things that he did about praying? He says, when you pray, pray like this. This is what is to consist of your prayer life before God. It's not the mechanics of it as such. It's the content. It's the content with reference to God. It's the content with the attitude that you approach God in that praying, because that's what the Lord's Prayer concerns is that we acknowledge who God really is, give Him the due credit, give Him the due glory, hallow His name, but then as well that we understand that in praying that prayer, that we do it with the right desire that we want to commune with God. So, let's take a look at this. what constitutes the Lord's Prayer. So when Jesus says... Don't pray like the Pharisees. Pray like this. So he says in verse 9, Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Turn with me to Psalm 86. What does it mean to hallow God's name? Turn to uh, Psalm 86. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. 
Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify thy name forever. When Jesus says, when you pray, he says, you pray, as we have seen here, he says, hallowed be thy name. Well, what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, it means to honor as holy, to venerate God's name. It means to view God as sacred, holy, above all else. That's what it means to hallow something. You remember when Moses was before God at the burning bush? What did God say to him? Moses, take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. Now, why was he on holy ground? Because he was in the presence of the living God. And he showed that he was hallowing God's name by giving God due honor for who God is, that God is I am that I am. So when we hallow God's name, we are acknowledging who God is in all of his perfections. You know, the simplest definition of God, someone will ask you, then what is God like? Here's what you tell someone. God is the sum of all of his perfections. That's the most simple definition of God. But it encompasses everything. God is the sum total of his perfections. And part of those perfections is when Moses was before God and he told him to take off those sandals because he was on holy ground. You are before the living God, Moses. And when Moses, when he told Moses that he was going to use Moses to deliver his people out of bondage, Moses didn't want to do it. And then he says, well, God, what am I to tell people what your name is? And God says, well, then tell them I am has sent you. In the Hebrew, it says, I am that I am. It's a construction in the Hebrew language. It says this. God is his own explanation of himself. Period. You know, you can't use any externals to define God. You can't. If you do it, you're blasphemous. God says, I define myself by myself. I am that I am. That's why we said, God is the sum total of all his perfections. And so when he said, I am that I am, he says, I am God who has no beginning and no end. I have always been. There is no other. As you go through the scriptures, you're going to see that God reveals himself. He says, I am God. There is no other besides me. None. And that's why God takes uh, idolatry so personal and why he considers it a capital offense. He says, I, there is no other God besides me. My names, and if you were to look at the names of God in the scripture, you have these uh, uh, multitudes of names of God. Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, you've got all of these names. And what are they revealing? A perfection of God. They're either revealing something about his character, that he's the eternal one, that he's the all-providing one, that he's the almighty one, that he's the creator. Revealing all something about God. That's what the name of God is. So when we hallow God's name... We are coming before God in, in some sense, in a fearful way, recognizing we're not dealing with any ordinary person here. Now, if you were to, to meet with dignitaries, if you were, I hate to, to use the, the thing, meet with the president, because you might not even want to bother if you were invited, right? But if you're, you are meeting with people, certain heads of state, people with great power, things of that nature, you recognize you're not just meeting an ordinary individual, you're meeting a special individual. And there's a certain protocol of how 
you should relate to that person. And God says, when you come before me, he told Moses, you take off your sandals. You're on holy ground because you're dealing with me, God. And therefore, we're to have this holy fear of God. That's what hallowing his name implies, a, a, a holy fear. And what does that mean? That we are dealing with the creator of the universe. He is the creator I am the creature, and God could simply breathe on me, and I would be no more. We're dealing with a, a power that is beyond the imagination of anyone. In fact, God says, you can't even look upon my glory and live. Because I am the, the creator is of such essence that the creature can't take it. That's who you're dealing with. Father says, he says, I know, Jesus says, you come before God, you hallow his name. Now, so there's, there's two things, there's two things that we need to keep in mind when we go before God in prayer. Who is it that we're praying to? The majestic one. But guess what? The other thing that we need to keep in mind, this majestic one, this being who is beyond the imagination of any creature to comprehend, this God of, of such immensity is said to be what? Our heavenly Father. Those are the two things to keep in mind. We're dealing with an awesome, majestic God but guess what? This awesome, majestic God is our Father in heaven. Implying this intimate relationship that a father has with his child. You see, we need, in this regard, there is an intimacy that's being stressed here as a father would have with his child. See, the Father knows all about us. Our Heavenly Father knows all about us. Even uh, oftentimes, an earthly father knows the needs of his child. It's natural for a father to want to bless a child. We're going to see when we get over to Matthew chapter uh, 7, it says that uh, earthly fathers have concerns to give to their children when their children come to them. Much more won't our Heavenly Father give to those who ask Him. So as Jesus says in Matthew 7:11, that as an earthly father wants to bless his child, so God, our Heavenly Father, wants to bless us with good things here. And note here, two wonderful things are combined. The glory of God's name, the sovereignty of God, with the fact He is our Father. So I ask you, do you have that mindset when you go to God in prayer? Do you go to God nonchalantly? That's not a good thing. You're going before the one who exists before all. You're going before the mighty God. Do you have that mindset of reverence, of hallowing the name of God? And at the same time, do you go with the mindset, he is my father, however, who wants to give good things to me as his child. And so, <clears throat> there is an intimacy that the scripture is encouraging us to have. The child comes before a loving father to ask. And you see, our father, just like an earthly father, remember the scripture says, God already knows what you need before you ask. That's what Jesus says. He already knows it, but he still wants you to pray to him. Why? Because God, our heavenly father, wants to commune with his child. Not that God is lonely without us. 
No. God's not lonely without us. He is self-sufficient. But he is nonetheless our Heavenly Father. And as uh, to all of us who are earthly fathers, do we object to the fact, are we not pleased, are we not encouraged when our children come to us and say, Daddy, I would like this, please. You still cherish that relationship that you have with the son or daughter. You want to have that communion with them. You already maybe know what they were going to come and ask for anyway, but you desired when you saw that they came. You valued that. You valued that communion. We were made to have communion with God. We were made to have communion with our Heavenly Father. So God, we need to understand that when we come to Him, we shouldn't have this perspective that God is some mean ogre in heaven who wants to crush us. He doesn't want to crush His children. He wants to give good things to His children. He wants us to walk in holiness of life before Him. But God is desirous to bless His children. You know, shame on us for thinking that we come to God with this mindset of paupers before God and that we don't come before Him as princes and princesses. Because that's what we are. Princes and princesses. We are sons and daughters of the mighty God. But we are intimately related to Him. He is our Father. You know, God is not ultimately standing up there to stand between us and our desires. Like I said, He's not intending to be some mean ogre to us. Turn to Psalm 37. Look at verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that's a passage that is, has a, it's a magnificent promise, but it's often misunderstood as well. Does that mean I can get whatever I want, the desires of my heart? Well, it says, delight yourself, first of all, in the Lord. My delight is in Him. That's where I find my sustenance. That's where I find my hope. Uh, That is, He is my everything. I delight in Him. I live for Him, not myself. And so what you and I have got to do, we've got to learn to channel our desires into the things that God desires, right? Take delight in Him, it says. Delight yourself in Him. When my desires are beginning to line up with the desires of God... That's when we begin to experience a lot of the power in prayer to give us. Because now we are praying the way God wants us to pray. And so what we see here, even though God knows what we need before we ask, the Father takes pleasure in communing with his children. Take a look. At verse, another thing about uh, verse 9 is that Jesus commands us, commands us to acknowledge that intimate relationship that we have with God. By the way, we need to have this understanding that when we come before God, we see Him encouraging us to come with confidence, to come with boldness. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Take a look at verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. 
Then over here in Hebrews 7, verse 19, he says, For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope in which we draw near to God. We are commanded to draw near to God with confidence. Confidence because Jesus has prepared the way for us. We are entering the most, uh, the holy of holies in heaven. See, the tabernacle was but an earthly representation of the tabernacle in heaven. The earthly tabernacle was but a shadow of the real thing. And you and I have been ushered in as Christians to the true tabernacle in heaven of which the earthly one was but a shadow of. We can come personally before into the throne room of the living God and then say, Daddy, because of that intimate relationship, because he's a father to us. And so what we see here is this expectation that you and I are supposed to have when we come into the presence of the living God. Now, take a look there at Matthew verse uh, 10. We acknowledge that uh, not only do we come before the Lord and hallow his name and understand that he is intimate uh, with his people. By the way, let's turn to another passage before we move on that will bring this out greatly for us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Because remember, we not only understand that God, his name is to be hallowed, but we have that intimate relationship as a father and a child. And look what Romans 8 tells us. Verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. You see, this is where it says he is our Heavenly Father. He has adopted us into his, his family. We are sons and daughters of God. We are the princes and the princesses of God. We are a holy priesthood before him. And so, not only did Jesus say, when you pray... Hallow his name and understand you have this personal relationship with him, then what else should be how the prince or the princess should pray then? Since you belong to God, how should you pray? Well, look what he says there in verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, oftentimes in our prayer lives, we we have a tendency to pray for ourselves exclusively. We pray for our perceived needs. We pray for the needs of others. We're not denigrating that at all. But we often, uh, and we often pray for the medical uh, issues in us uh, and others. Well, Lord, I, my, my foot hurts today. Well, you pray. You know, that's not to say we don't pray for our foot that's hurting today. But the thing about it here is, Jesus says, when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So one of the things that in our denomination, the RPCUS, when we are examining prospective elders, whether they are teaching elders or ruling elders, one of the places that we say, would you like to give us, uh, one, give us some passages that explain the, the post-millennial hope? Because that's one of our distinctives in our denomination that we acknowledge in the scriptures. Well, one of the places we like to hear some prospective elder tell us, well, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will on earth be done. 
<coughs> you see, this whole notion that there is somehow this segmentation between that which is spiritual and that which is uh, secular, and the only the things that really matters are the things that are spiritual, not the things that are secular. That's a false, what we call, dualism. It's a false dichotomy. God owns every square inch on planet Earth. And what are we to pray for, Jesus says? We pray that thy kingdom come on Earth. Everything that befits the kingdom of God, that is what we pray for. When Jesus was on earth in his ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. All those things that are manifested about the nature of God's kingdom, his glory, uh, his purposes, God's desires, that's what you want to see in all of life. So, we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And everything that is true of God, we want to see manifested on planet earth. We pray for God to prevail on earth, is what we pray for. We don't, <clears throat> we don't come into this idea of thinking that, oh, this doesn't really matter to God. No, everything matters to God. So when the government comes and says to us, you know, the church, you're trying to influence culture, and the, and the state comes in and says, church, you need to mind your own business. And you know what we should say? I am minding my own business. My business is the world. My business is your sphere of activity. Thy kingdom come. I'm going to pray. Thy kingdom come. There is no sphere that's outside of what I'm praying for God's will to be manifested in. And so, when we pray, we need to pray, pray in such a way that our culture is redeemed for the glory of Christ. Why? Jesus is presently reigning according to the Word of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We pray for King Jesus to have his way on planet Earth in every respect. There is no area beyond the influence of God. You see, with respect to our civil rulers, some say, well, church, mind your business. Your business is over here in the church. Our business is over here in the civil realm and politics. Mind your own business. And I say to them, no, we are minding our own business. Listen to us, as Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun or perish, silver ruler. That's what God says. Kiss the sun, do homage to him, or perish. I am minding my business. My business is every square inch on planet Earth. So Jesus is commanding us to pray this way. You know, this is a, <clears throat> we pray... For our president, the Congress, the, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court. We pray for our state legislatures. We pray for our local sheriffs. What? Thy will be done on earth. And what is God's will? Right here is God's will. He's revealed to us what he wants. And he has told us you're to pray for the impact of the kingdom everywhere. All of culture is our business. That is part of the Lord's Prayer. Now what is, <clears throat> we mentioned earlier, that we are to align our purposes, our desires, with God's desires, right? But what is Jesus' desire? Well, turn over to Matthew 28. Begin with verse 18 to verse 20, commonly known as the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Do you pray for your health? Well, yes, you pray for your health. But why do you pray for your health? Let me tell you, if you pray for your health, this is how you pray for your health. Lord, make me healthy so that I can be a better servant of yours. So that I can be a greater instrument in the advancement of the cause of Christ in the world. That's how you should pray. So let me ask you, why should God heal us if we have no intentions to serve him? Think about that for a moment. Why should God heal us if we have no desire to be used in his kingdom work? Why should God honor that prayer? I don't see any reason why he should honor that prayer. If we're not living for him, we've lost everything. He is our purpose. He is our everything. He is our Lord. And the kingdom must be on our minds all the time. And so, in this regard, and so when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth, what did Jesus say here in the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I have all the power in the universe. So when I commission you to go out and make disciples of the nations, I am empowering you to do that. So we are to be concerned about the kingdom work. But what else did Jesus tell us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Well, it says there in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. We're physical creatures, right? Later in chapter 6, we're going to see that God says, I know what your needs are. I know that you need food. I know that you need clothing. But jump ahead a little bit. There in Matthew 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all that food and all that clothing will be given to you. But seek first the kingdom of God. You see see where our, our mindset needs to be? The work of the kingdom. The work for serving the Lord. So when it says here, Give us this day our daily bread, you know, there's a great passage in Psalm 37, verse 25, that says this. It says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. And it's talking about the righteous. So when it talks about the descendants, it's talking about the promises of God that are generational in terms of those that seek his face. Now, it's not automatic. As someone once said, well, are you a Christian? He says, well, no, but my, my great-granddaddy was. <laughs> you don't get in on the tail, uh, as it were, of, of, of your parents or your grandparents. This promise is related to the, all those who seek to glorify him. Then the scripture says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor all those generations that serve him. I've never seen those forsaken either. See, God will take care of your needs if you're seeking his face. And notice it says, my daily bread. My daily bread. Now, we looked at the passage in the Sunday school hour, 1 Timothy 6, 8, did we not? Where it says, with food and clothing, let us be content. Yeah, there are some times where God... In his provision for us, you wonder, why is it that he sometimes just, uh, when we're praying for him to meet our needs, he just meets a certain portion of it and says, well, I'd like to have all of it taken care of for the next six months, Lord. I want enough to get through the next six months, Lord, not just through Thursday. What's God desiring of us? Well, when he provides us our daily bread, that means the next day, what do we got to do? We go back 
and we come before the Lord saying, Lord, I need my daily bread today on Wednesday. And he gives us enough for that, and he says, well, I'll give you that. And on Thursday, we come back, and he gives us our daily bread for Thursday. The point here is, the scripture says, with food and clothing, let us therewith be content, said the inspired apostle. So we are thankful. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. The Lord will take care of us today. And when we get to Matthew 6, I'm always wanting to jump ahead here and preach Matthew 6, 25 and following. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Why do you say that? Because says, tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. That's tomorrow. But today, pray for today. Trust me today. I'll give you what you need today. And when tomorrow comes, well, tomorrow then is Today, and you pray for today's daily bread. And then the next day, don't worry about the next day. When the next day comes, well, that's that day I pray for my daily bread. See, God wants that daily dependence upon him. And that's why he doesn't oftentimes give us, you know, treasure houses full of things that last for a long time. Uh, because he wants that communion. He wants us to keep coming before him in faith, believing that he'll take care of our needs. And that develops this dependency, right, that we should have on God. A daily dependency on him. That's what he desires. <clears throat> so, you know, when God, <clears throat> oftentimes, it says that he will give us our daily breads, he will give us our needs. He's under no obligation to give you and me whatever financial request we come before him. Now, in our modern culture, where we travel a lot, we could probably argue for the fact that having transportation, an automobile, is necessary for carrying out of our work. But is God obligated to give you, says, well, I want a Ferrari, God. Is God God obligated to give us a Ferrari? No. But he may give you a a, a, a broken down, rust beaten uh, external vehicle that will get you from point A to point B. But as long as you get from point A to point B, you got there, right? You may not have ridden in style like you may have wanted, but you got to point A and got to point B. You got from home to work. And be thankful that he provided you the transportation to get there, whatever it is. What else did Jesus say we're to pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You know what we're supposed to do? We're to pray and ask God. When we're in debt, when we pray uh, to forgive us our debts, what we're praying is, God, forgive us of our transgressions, our breaking of the law of God. Lord, forgive me for breaking your holy law. Forgive me, forgive my debt against you. And as I forgive those who transgress against me, those who sin against me. You see, in this regard, what we do, we need we pray for mercy. We don't pray in terms of merit before God. We come before God with mercy. And we realize that we are sinners and we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we know that uh, of our daily failures before God, or we should know of our daily failures, and that we don't honor people as we ought to honor, uh, that we don't uh, love our wives as we ought to love our wives, that we don't honor our husbands and submit to our husbands as we ought to submit, that we don't obey our parents as children as we ought to obey. Lord, forgive me of my transgressions. Have 
mercy on me, God. We come with the attitude that the publican had in Jesus' parable of Luke 18. When the, the, uh, you have the Pharisee and you have the publican, the Pharisee came standing in the synagogue. Remember, Jesus says the Pharisees loved to stand in front. It was often they would go into the synagogue and stand in front of the synagogue to draw attention. And he says, you have this Pharisee in Luke 18 who says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner, the publican. But that publican, that tax collector, he's over there with his head bowed down, and he's he can't even hold his head up because he says, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you have the Pharisee saying, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that man, that sinner. And Jesus said, who went away justified that day? It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the one who humbled himself, who pled for mercy. Lord, Forgive us of our debts, of our transgressions. And so what we see here, we need to have this mindset. When we ask for God for mercy, we need to be willing to show mercy. And that's why it says, we have forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. You hold any grudges? Are you bitter towards anyone? Are you upset how somebody, well, you just don't understand what he did to me, or you don't understand what she did to me. Yeah, they sinned against you. You come before God and you plead for mercy. You want mercy. Yes, they sinned against you. Are you going to yield? Are you going to give mercy to them? Jesus wants you in prayer to pray with an attitude of coming to God, not in terms of merit, but as a beggar in the line of heaven pleading for mercy. And he expects you in return to show mercy to those who sinned against you. And then we see, what else did Jesus say we ought to pray for in the Lord's Prayer? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, you and I, we understand that we live in a world, of such a world that uh, is very enticing. We, we have a sin nature, even though we have been uh, <clears throat> delivered from the bondage of that sin, there still remains that sin. That's why the Scripture says we need to ask God for forgiveness. That's why we have, uh, in our order of worship, we start with assurance of forgiveness. We've got to have this idea and, and an understanding that we, coming before God, that we understand our frailties, our weaknesses. We are weak. Yes, we've been delivered by the power of God from the bondage to sin, but we still have the remaining effects of sin there. Paul understood it. Paul understood, he says, I love God, I serve Him with uh, my mind, but I see another law at work in me, uh, in rebellion against God. Oh Lord, who will deliver me from this? He says, but praise be to God through Jesus Christ. And so what we do, we pray, he says, Lord, don't lead us into temptation. Now we know according to the scriptures in James 1.13, God doesn't tempt anybody. God is not in the business of actively tempting either you or me. So what did he mean? Lead us not to temptation. We're praying that uh, we will abstain from situations where the likelihood of us falling victim to our sinful proclivities, that we ask God to protect us from that. Turn with me over to Matthew 26. Look at verse 40 and 41. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying right before his arrest. He's told his disciples to pray with, with him, but they are sleeping. He comes back and he says to Peter, verse 40, 
And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch for me for one hour? Verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, that's exactly what Paul says. In my spirit, I want to do the right thing. I want to obey him. But I know there is another law at work, this sinful, the remaining of the sinful nature that's always plaguing me. And so what we're asking is, God, help us to watch, be diligent, so that we're not led into sin, that we're not find ourselves into a situation where we'll be tempted, that we'll be, be seduced. Because the devil is always wanting to bring us down, always wanting to bring us down. And so what we're doing is that we're pleading with God to be present with us so that we won't fall. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Take a look at that. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. You know, we may not always be able to protect ourselves from certain situations that we find ourselves in, but oftentimes uh, we are our own worst enemy. Uh, we engage in activities we ought not, and so we bring it upon ourselves. But sometimes we may not be uh, actively engaged in going somewhere or doing certain things, and then we're tempted. What we pray for is that, Lord, help me to see the way of escape. Because there is a way of escape. There is a door of freedom. I don't have to succumb to the temptation. So, Lord, help me find that door. I beg of you, help me find that door. That's what you pray for. When Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, we, we pray that we'll be protected from the wiles of the devil. Uh, we pray for God to deliver us from the evil from the world, from the corruption of the world through lust. We pray for God to deliver us from the uh, corruption in our own hearts. Deliver us from evil, God. Please. That is what we ought to be praying for. Oh, but my, my finger hurts today, Lord. My finger hurts. <laughs> yeah, your finger hurts. Well, what about the kingdom of God? What about all the temptation you fell into that you forgot to pray about? You prayed about your finger, but you didn't pray about guarding your heart today and you fell into sin. And how does Jesus end the Lord's Prayer? He says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Thine is the kingdom. God owns all things. No area of life is outside of God's domain. We understand that all of life is about our relationship to God. Thine is is the kingdom. Oh, but we can't talk about politics and religion, as they say. No, thine is the kingdom. Oh, but you can't talk about Jesus now, supposedly in the military, and you can be disciplined for trying to proselyte somebody to the Christian faith now as they're trying to, to attempt. What you say to them is, no, Thine is the kingdom, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Do whatever you want to me, but I am going to tell them about Jesus. Thine is the kingdom. Oh, but you've got to be uh, uh, religiously uh, correct. You've you, you got to be diverse. You've got to be diverse in, in your religious views. And we live in a day where uh, everybody talks about you've got to honor diversity. No, thine is the kingdom. There is only one way. 
that you can be saved, and that's by Jesus. No other name. Yeah, I'll say it. The Pope said just last week, everybody that does good will make it into heaven, even the atheists. And then the atheists got upset with him that he said that. Everybody's going to make it. Not everybody's going to make it. Thine is the kingdom. He says, thine is the kingdom. And thine, he says, is the power. You know that God, as Jesus I've already alluded to, He says, I have all the authority in heaven and earth. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have everything at my dispense. The gospel is said to be the dunamis of God, the power of God. And we understand that no one is converted Unless God opens their ears to hear. Unless God opens their eyes to see. Unless God opens their hearts to receive the things of the Lord that are preached. It takes the power of God to save someone. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Jesus said in in Psalm 110, we're alluding to Jesus. He says, Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. And then verse 2 says, stretch forth thy strong scepter, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. And verse 3 says, it says, thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. He has it all. And thine is the glory. God says in Isaiah 48:11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. We pray that God's glory be reflected in our own lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our nature. Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory. This is how Jesus said to pray. Don't be like the hypocrites who are praying about themselves, drawing attention to themselves. No, this is how you are to pray. Hallow my name. I'm your heavenly Father. I'll give you all that you need to be about my business, my work, my kingdom. Because I am the living God. And you are mine. I own you. I own you. Remember when Jesus saved you, Jesus says, I bought you with the price. My blood was shed for you. That's the price I had to pay to redeem you. I own you. So, in your prayer life, are you that concerned about bringing honor to God? And when you pray for your needs, pray for your needs so that you will be a better servant of the one who owns you. That's how you pray. Lord, we ask that you bless us as only you can bless us. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen.